Good afternoon, church. Please uh, remain standing for the reading of God's word. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope you all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, I love preaching uh, on Sundays. I hope uh, that you have been encouraged, particularly last week as we have walked through Holy Week, and now as we find ourselves back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so in the event that you didn't catch Gabe, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. And so while you open or load your Bibles, uh, let me just give you two brief Updates. The first one is because we're back in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's a good reminder for us, uh, it's a good reminder from us to you that we love God's Word. We love to preach from God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's Word. And so if you don't have a Bible, there are these Bibles in the pews where you're seated. This is our gift to you. Please take one with you so that you can have. Or if you know someone that would benefit greatly from having God's Word in their hands, please hook them up. Uh, the second announcement has to deal with, or the second update, has to deal with community groups. For us here at Storehouse McAllen, community groups are our primary avenue of discipleship and care. And so if you're not connected to one, I would encourage you to get connected, whether it's checking us out online or going to the Connect Desk out in the lobby. With that being said, if you are interested, gentlemen specifically, if you are interested in joining a community group but you haven't been able to yet, uh, we have a men's group that would meet on Wednesday mornings. Beginning this coming Saturday, April 22nd, that group is moving to Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. And I believe they hang out at the Country Omelette. Gabe, who did the scripture reading, leads that group. And so if you have been interested in joining a community group and schedules have been somewhat conflicting, go ahead and talk to Gabe, and he'll hook you up with all those details. Again, that starts this coming Saturday. Well, I know you heard the text that Gabe just read, so let's, uh, let's dig into our time uh, faithfully, I hope. The word eschatology brings, if I may be so honest, brings about a cocktail of emotions to many people, especially in our church. Eschatology is the study of the last things, or some may know them as the end times. This study of theology has left many scratching their heads about what the Bible actually teaches, and in frustration, many stop studying and stop trying to figure it out. Others don't even want to attempt studying it. For many, the study of eschatology 
isn't an area of delight at the return of Christ. It's more one of dread. Many Christians have grown fervent or passionate over the study of eschatology, both out of curiosity and fictional literature. However, there are other Christians who, instead of finding passion, they have found fear. They have found fear as a result of misuse, poor interpretation, and dare I say, spiritual abuse from pastors and churches. If you have found yourself in any of these experiences, let me begin by inviting you, on one hand, to surrender your view of the end time for a moment, because the truth is you don't have all of the answers, and neither do I. And though people like me would probably benefit from learning from you, let me just remind you that if your view or if your position doesn't have Jesus as the centerpiece of your theology, then you've already missed it. And if you have been one who sits in the pews, on the other hand, who sits in the pews in fear, let me begin by grieving with you. Let me begin by grieving with you on how this study has been used to instill fear in you. This topic is about Jesus. His return means the work in which he began in you, that is saving you and redeeming you, is coming to a completion so that you would dwell in his presence forever. This topic is about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. And don't let anybody tell you different. Therefore, as we consider our text today, Paul is going to introduce several truths about the return of Christ. My goal is to provide an introduction to this eschatology and to eschatology because this will be a topic that we will be revisiting both next week and as we walk into 2 Thessalonians in the next four weeks. So we're going to be looking at this, uh, think of it from a 100,000 foot view, and then we're going to get a little bit more specific each time Paul addresses it with the Thessalonians. We're going to do our best to clear the muddy waters. But for today, here's what I want you to know. Here's your main idea. What you believe about future glory shapes how you walk in godliness today. What you believe about future glory shapes how you walk in godliness today. The truth is, I'm not going to be able to unpack the entire study of eschatology and the return of Christ within the next 35 minutes if I stick to that time. So I'm asking for prayer and wisdom and certainly discernment. So let me pray, and we're going to dive right into this text. God, we thank you for allowing us to gather and come under the, uh, the authority of your word. Therefore, Lord, our, our, our prayer is simple and direct. Would you give us grace today? Would you give us wisdom uh, and discernment as we sift and examine your word? God, by your spirit, would you bring the comfort of Jesus to hearts who are in fear? Likewise, by your spirit, would you bring the conviction of sin to our hearts likewise so that we would turn to Jesus? 
If all of Scripture is breathed out by you, then, Lord, may your word this afternoon be sweeter than the taste of honey, even with a topic as challenging as this. And so we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. All right. Well, let me give you an overview of where we've been in 1 Thessalonians. We took a break during Holy Week, so let me give you a quick overview. This is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a young church plant in Thessalonica. And in the first three chapters, Paul does this thing where he just addresses and reminds them of their identity. He thoroughly encourages them for their perseverance in the face of persecution. He thanks God for his work in them and how much encouragement Paul has received as a result of that. And finally, he expresses how much he misses the Thessalonians as a result of his relationship to them and his investment that he has made for the sake of the gospel with them. At one point, Paul goes on to say that if Jesus were to return at that very moment, the first thing Paul would do would be running to Jesus to boast to Jesus about Jesus' work in the Thessalonians. Paul loved the Thessalonians. And in chapter 4, we see this classic change of direction from Paul that we notice in, in all of his letters, really, where he turns his attention from identity to activity. And it's usually at the halfway point of most of his letters. And in other words, what Paul is ultimately doing is he wants to remind all the churches that he writes to, particularly the church in Thessalonica, hey, this is who you are in Jesus. This is what Jesus has done for you. You are a new creation. Let me remind you of his redemptive work. And as a result of that, let me tell you how you ought to walk as a result of that work. So he goes from identity to activity, and he does that in all of his letters. And here in 1 Thessalonians, it's at the start of chapter 4. In chapter 4, he began by addressing sexuality not simply as a moral concern, but one of uh, the pursuit of holiness, that the whole goal was for them to know that the will of God for them was their sanctification, their, their maturity, their growth in godliness, their response to God's work for them. Later, he addressed their affection and service for one another in the midst of persecution and around those who don't know Jesus. And today, he turns his attention to the return of Christ. And he turns his attention to the return of Christ because from what we can tell, many Christians in the church had died at this point, and those who are alive are wondering about their future. They're wondering about the future of their lost ones. And they're also wondering if the return of Christ has already taken place. And we can pull some of this from the context of 2 Thessalonians, right? And so what we're going to see in this section of Scripture is Paul encouraging them with comfort. When we go to 2 Thessalonians, he's going to encourage them with correction. At this point, the Thessalonians, they're scared and they're sad and they're fearful. And the first thing that Paul does in verse 13 is he provides them with pastoral encouragement, and I love that about Paul because he can go so many different ways. And the first thing that he wants to do is encourage them with care, with comfort. Verse uh, 13 begins, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That, that word uh, has to deal with those who have already died. Right? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
Here, Paul wants to begin to encourage them. He wants to engage their concerns and their questions, but he wants to do so by first encouraging them with comfort. He doesn't want them walking ignorantly. He doesn't want them walking ignorantly. That's why he's taking the time to address, let me tell you about the return of Christ. Right? Let me tell you about the return of Christ. Paul makes things clear so that they're informed, and this is something that we need in our day. See, when it comes to eschatology, there are many believers who are so discouraged by the return of Christ or embarrassed that they don't know enough that they accept misinformation and misuse of Scripture because, truthfully, many churches don't teach on this subject, or if some do, their tactics tend to be hurtful and harmful to the congregation. And so without instilling fear, in fact, while removing that and reminding them that you're not to be fearful but faithful, that's why Paul wants to encourage them with comfort. He doesn't want them just embracing any kind of rumor, any kind of teaching, and so Paul is going to set the record straight. That's why he says, we want you to be informed. Secondly, this encouragement of comfort is rooted in the promise and person of Jesus. Moving forward for a minute, Paul goes on to say in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he's providing them with the encouragement of comfort based on the promise and person of Jesus. He reminds them that though they are not spared from death, their grief is not in vain. They have lost loved ones, they've lost family, they've lost friends, and so he wants to tell them, or he is telling them, that their grief is not in vain. In fact, they can grieve while being sustained through faith and the life-giving promises of God's word. And the way he does that is by reminding them of Jesus' return. Hey, that one day we will all be with him. Because Jesus was, we looked at this last week, because Jesus was the first fruits, you can be assured that there will be a resurrection. There will be a bodily resurrection. And ultimately, this comfort, before we get into the weeds, ultimately this comfort Paul brings about so that he can teach them how to lament well. If you don't know what lament is, lament is living in the tension between hardship and the promises of God. And that's what Paul is bringing before them. And he's almost encouraging that, and that's how he's telling, or that's how he's comforting them. He's acknowledging what has happened, he's acknowledging their fear, and then reminding them of the promises of God. And though they grieve on this side of eternity, he reminds them and us that we don't have to grieve in vain. Why is that? Well, because our chief fear of death has been conquered by Jesus who died in our place for our sin. Because Jesus has conquered death by his own resurrection, he has guaranteed the resurrection of all who know him through faith. Because Jesus will return, Paul is saying, this grave is temporary. Because of Jesus' resurrection, Paul reminds them uh, elsewhere to the Corinthian church, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so he's bringing about encouragement, or he's bringing about comfort to the Thessalonians, reminding them of the person and promise of Jesus. And so their grief is not in vain. And though their tears are filled with lament on this side of eternity, it's only temporary. 
Why is it only temporary? Because Jesus is coming back, and Jesus has promised to come back, and Jesus has promised that there will be a resurrection. In addition to that, death and sin will be no more, and Jesus will personally wipe away all tears from our eyes. And so Paul is saying, so therefore, because of the promise in the person of Jesus and his work, you can grieve well. You are not without hope. He even adds this little line in verse 13, that you may grieve as others do who have hope. In other words, there are others who don't have hope. And so Paul is saying, hey, remember the promise and person of Jesus, and it is because of his work for you, and it is because of his work in you, that you can grieve with comfort. And there are others who do not have it. What we believe about the return of Christ shapes how we walk, or in this case, how we grieve today. And so verse 13 and part of 14 gives us the context of what's happening. They have lost loved ones, they're wondering, and they're confused. What's going to happen? How is the return of Jesus going to affect them? And here is where he transitions. We go from pastoral encouragement to now Paul's main portion of this text, and that is the physical return of Christ. This is verses 15 to 17. Now, I want to make it clear here, this is Paul's entire focus for our time today. His entire focus is the return of Christ. The reason I say that is because as we begin to walk through these verses, a lot of questions and concerns are going to pop up, and that's not necessarily the point of today. So we're only looking at these verses. The point is comfort. And so Paul begins to address the personal return, uh, the personal and physical return of Jesus Christ, moving to verse 15. He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, so God revealed something to them, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And verse 16, which is where we'll spend the majority of the time, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I absolutely love this portion of 1 Thessalonians 4. I love it because to Paul, this, the return of Christ that is, is a blessed and amazing day. It will be a day where we will pass from time to eternity, from earth to heaven, from faith to sight, from what is corruptible to incorruptible, from mortality to immortality, from sanctification to glorification, from sorrow to singing, from death to delight, from weariness to worship, The return of Christ is our wedding day where the church who is the bride is brought forth to the groom who is Jesus. And so in this section, Paul provides three encouraging truths. The first one is found in verse 16, and that is Jesus himself will descend. That is the first thing, right? Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Here's what Paul wants us to know. When Jesus returns, when Jesus descends, it will be an obvious, instantaneous, and monumental event where Jesus is coming down from heaven. He isn't sending anyone else. This isn't a hologram. He is not sending someone else to speak on his behalf. Rather, he is coming physically and personally. 
And the imagery that Paul uses in verse 16 is, is based on a general or a king who is returning to his city after winning a war for his people. And this great moment of victory would be proclaimed in all of the city. And so let's look at this imagery briefly. Paul says that he will descend from heaven with a cry of command. That phrase means a shout. It is to depict both the clarity and authority of Jesus' voice. In John's gospel, Jesus goes on to say that his sheep know his voice. And so when Jesus appears, when Jesus descends, and Jesus uses a shout of command, his sheep will know his voice. It will be authoritative, it will be uh, very, very clear, and it will be loud enough, I promise. You'll be like, I don't know if I'll hear it. You'll, you'll hear it. In addition to that, he goes on to say a cry of command with the voice of an archangel. So we know that he's not riding alone. And we, know, we don't know which archangel it is, right? But we know that an archangel is going to accompany him. And so the imagery here is that of, of the driver of a chariot announcing to the city that not only has victory been won in the war, but the king is here. And so as Jesus descends from heaven and the archangel uses his voice, the archangel is just reaffirming what has happened. The king is here. Victory has won. And to the sheep, he is saying, it is time to go home. That's the level of authority and comfort that comes from this imagery. He continues, the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God. The sound of the trumpet of God provides a great deal of imagery from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And usually it has something to do or it has everything to do with anything from Preparation for battle, when you hear the trumpet, you see the troops getting ready. It has to deal with uh, uh, the sound of victory, right? That the war has been won, things have been conquered. Uh, and it also has to deal with, and we see this in Daniel 12, that the dead will rise. That the sound of the trumpet means it's time to get up. Here's what Paul wants us to take note of. Or here's what God, through Paul, let me be more specific, wants us to take note of. When Jesus returns, his sheep will know his voice. On that day, the sheep will not scatter. Rather, they will gather with him in sweet victory. This is a great day of both victory and comfort because Jesus has come. It is the culmination and conclusion of history. And the sheep will be with their shepherd. The second thing, or the second truth that Paul tells us, is that the dead in Christ will rise. Once again, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. Oh, here we go. All right. <laughs> so people getting nervous, right? All right, here we go. We're just going to look at it for what it is, right? This speaks of, or real quick, who he's talking about are believers that are asleep, that are dead. That's who he's talking about. Following me? All right, so he's speaking of believers' bodily resurrection. 
That's what he's talking about. As Jesus descends, we know that Jesus isn't coming alone, right? Back up to verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus is not coming alone as he descends from heaven. Yes, we have the archangel. Yes, we have uh, riders that are coming with Jesus. But in addition to that, it is the spirit and souls of those who have died. And now they will be united with their bodies and be totally transformed. Paul speaks of this in great detail, if you want to look it up, in 1 Corinthians 15. To the Corinthian church, he clarifies what it looks like, what the bodily resurrection will look like, in that when believers' soul and spirit meet their body, their bodies will be spiritually transformed. They will be physical bodies. They will be glorious bodies. They will be absolutely ready for glorification. They will be mighty. Yes, that's what it means. It's like, oh my. So the question here is, does that mean they're going to be zombies? Listen, it's an instantaneous event. Okay, so scratch that. Okay. Additionally, the question is, well, how do we know that the dead are going to rise? We know that because of verse 14. Verse 14 for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, that little phrase means in the same way. In other words, rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is saying, in the same way that Jesus rose from the grave, we are assured that the dead will also be risen. So the dead in Christ will raise. They will be reunited with their bodies and their bodies will be physically transformed, spiritually ready Number three, the alive in Christ will be gathered with Jesus. Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, that phrase, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them, to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. All right, let's go slowly, all right? Then we who are alive, he's specifically talking about those who are not dead, those who are alive in Christ, right? So we're clear on that. That's who he's talking about. He goes on to say, who are left? This isn't left behind, okay? This is an instantaneous event. What Paul is doing is just giving us a sequence of, 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 of an order that's happening in one moment, right? This is the part where a lot of, depending on where you stand on some of this, this is where people say, oh, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to have this like secret gathering and he's going to take people and then he's going to leave and then he's going to come back. And what Paul is saying is like, no, it's one event. It's instantaneously. And so though there is a sequence of order, it's all within a moment. And so when Paul says, those of us who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Who is them? Those who were dead and now alive. Those who are dead and now resurrected. Here's the fun one. Now, a little phrase, caught up, means rapture. That's where everybody starts to get nervous. All it means is that we will be that, caught up with those who have already been resurrected, meeting them in the air. If the question is, how high? I don't know. Paul doesn't say that. He says the clouds, right? So if the clouds are 50 feet above us, I guess we're going up 50 feet right? If you live in the mountains and the clouds are 10 feet above you, I guess you're going up 10 feet. I don't know. Paul doesn't tell us that. <clears throat> but what he does tell us is that we will be gathered up with them 
to be with Christ forever. That's the point. The return of Christ is a singular event. Again, there's a popular teaching that suggests that Jesus is going to come in secretly like he's some spec ops commander, and he's going to come in secretly to gather his people, and then he's going to leave, and then he's going to come back at another time. But that's not what Paul says here. That's not the imagery that Paul gives in verses 13 and 18. It's a singular event where Jesus personally, physically, visibly, and audibly returns to display his glory and gather the church. So though there may be a sequence in order to it, it's all in a moment. Here's the point. It will be Jesus himself that descends from heaven to gather his sheep and lead them to green pastures and still waters. She said, man, we're going to be reunited. Yeah, we're going to be reunited, certainly with Christ and certainly with loved ones, those who knew Jesus. And so we've looked at two things. We've looked at pastoral encouragement. Paul wants to provide them with hope so that they grieve well. And then Paul wants to provide them with encouragement by explaining the physical and personal return of Jesus. And then Paul turns to verse 18 so that he would personally encourage them or so that they would be personally encouraged and presently entrusted. And that's one of the things I wanted to focus on. Verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to walk ignorantly. Verse 18 tells you why. So that you would encourage one another. That's why. I don't want you to walk ignorantly. I don't want you to embrace just any theological thought. I don't want you to embrace some rumor that is not rooted in Scripture. I don't want you to do that. I want you informed well about the return of Christ so that you would encourage one another. Why? Because what we believe about future glory shapes how we walk in godliness today. And so when he writes the word therefore, he's saying, so in light of everything that I just told you, I don't want you walking ignorantly, and let me give you the, the, the beautiful hope of, of Jesus' return. He will come back physically. The dead in Christ will raise. Those of us who are alive will be raised with them, and we will be with Jesus forever. Therefore, in light of all of that, encourage one another. I want you to encourage one another with faith over fear. I want, to, I want you to encourage one another with comfort more than clarity because you don't have all of the answers. I want you to be encouraged because you are also equally entrusted with the same gospel. And so if you're one of those individuals that, man, this is just a touchy subject or it's a lot of lack of clarity or there's just been fear, let me just, I just hope you're personally encouraged. See, Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians, once again, to be uninformed. He doesn't want them walking ignorantly. He wants them to remember, because Jesus died and Jesus resurrected, Jesus will come again to claim his bride, the church. This isn't a day of dread. This is a day of delight. This will be a marvelous day. We will be with Jesus. In fact, Paul is so convinced by this, over and over again in this section, we read the pronoun we. Right? And what Paul is saying, or the reason he's using it, is because Paul thinks he's going to see the return of Christ in his time. Right? Once more, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed. He goes on to say elsewhere, um, <clears throat> for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. And he says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. He's thinking, it's going to happen in my day. It's going to happen in my generation. 
And so what Paul is ultimately explaining here is that at one point, at the return of Jesus, there will be a generation who will not taste death. That's trippy. There will be a generation who will not taste death. It could be ours. It could be 10 generations from now. But the point is that there will be a day when this takes place and we will be with Jesus. And that's what Paul wants you to be personally encouraged on. You will be with Jesus. This day is inevitable. And you will be with Jesus because of his work started in you. In addition to that, we receive personal encouragement, but we're also presently entrusted. Here's the question for you, Christian. How do you live today knowing that future glory is inevitable? How are you living today knowing that this day, the return of Christ, is inevitable? Martin Luther once said that he had two dates on his calendar, the day of Christ's return and today. And in the pages of church history, Christians have lived and given their lives in such a way as if Christ died yesterday, rose early this morning, and is coming again tonight. Living with expectation and anticipation. Paul felt that Christ could return at any moment in his own lifetime. How much more should we be eager and expectant tonight? You see, too many Christians are too busy looking for the Antichrist instead of the Christ. Too many live in apathy without action. Too many live in weariness and not worship. Too many live in conspiracy and not confession. This day is coming. So how are you living today? Remember, one of the things that Paul told the Thessalonians was, if Jesus returned right now, I would run to him and I would boast about his work in you. That's what I would want to tell them. If Jesus returns tonight, what will he see? What will Jesus see when he returns? Further and truthfully, because it is a day of great celebration for the righteous in Christ, and we'll touch on this more later, it will also be a day of judgment for the unrighteous. Here's why I mentioned that. That alone should spark, convict, not just motivate, but spark and convict our evangelistic efforts. You and I have friends and family that live in a way that rebels against Christ, rejects Christ, and because we don't want to upset them, because we don't want to talk about tension, we don't bring the gospel to them. But yet, each of us here this afternoon who know Jesus, someone took a chance to share the gospel with you as you and I lived recklessly, rebelliously, while rejecting Jesus. And you're here. How much more should we proclaim the excellencies of his mercy? of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
Let's stop being the kind of Christians that passively pray for people just so that we don't engage them and actually engage them with the truth of the gospel. Let's actually stop being passive Christians as though we've earned and merited this righteousness and this message and it's left for everyone else to figure it out. Someone took a chance on you and by the grace of God, you have been saved and redeemed. How much more should we go and share this wonderful news with those who do not know Jesus? The encouragement and entrusting of the gospel is a reminder that there will be a day, there will be a day where at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and on under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We walk encouraged because we are comforted and entrusted with the gospel. So though I want you to be personally comforted with the beauty of this day, I don't want you walking out of here as though you are not presently today entrusted with the same message. The final days are a serious topic. The return of Christ, however, should not be and is not an event of dread for the Christian, but one of great delight. The gospel is not separate from the last days. And many Christians treat it that way. It's the gospel, it's the Bible, but Revelation, it's, it's on his own thing, right? If all of Scripture is breathed out by God, then Revelation and the study of this topic is about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It's going to be about Jesus. And Jesus is the centerpiece of all of our theology, or at least he should be. The gospel is not separate the return of Christ is just the completion of it. It's the completion because at one point in time, space, and history, God entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, to live a life that you and I cannot live. He died a death that you and I deserve to die, was buried, and three days later, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was raised from the dead and saved us by his grace that we cannot earn. His work on the cross has redeemed us in making us new, forgiven us of our sins, transformed our hearts, and renewed our minds. And one day he will return to gather us, to take us home. Does this, when we look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, does this shape the way we live for today? Absolutely. Because this day, the return of Christ, is the culmination and conclusion of history. This day will disclose everything. What has been hidden will be revealed. What has been in the dark will come into the light, and it will disclose the purposes of our heart. See, for those in Jesus, this will be a day of great rejoicing. But for those who don't know them or know him, this will be a day of judgment. And so as we close, Christian, let me just give you a quick uh, encouragement and reminder. You belong to God through faith in Jesus, you belong to the Father because of the Son's work for you. His return is our reward. You have nothing to fear. Jesus does not wish you to be fearful. He wishes you to be faithful. 
whether he returns today or many years from now, what is it that you need to bring to him this afternoon? What do you need to put on the table this afternoon? Do you need to lay down your fear? Do you need to put it on the table? Lay your fear down on the table so that Jesus would be your comfort. Are you idle as far as sharing the gospel and telling others of the excellencies of God? Then let Jesus be your motivation. You're not better than anybody. You're just repentant. What do you need to bring before Jesus today? To receive comfort, to receive conviction, to receive correction. Come before Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, love that you're here. Thanks for joining us. The Bible teaches that we are either in Christ, alive in Christ, or dead in our sin. And if you do not know Jesus, you are dead in your sin. Yet God has made a way possible for you, for that to not be your whole story. In fact, God sent his son to die on a cross for sinners, and any who turn from their sin and toward Jesus are forgiven and given a new life. Turn to Jesus Repent of your sin and place your trust in him. Church, what you believe about future glory shapes how you walk in godliness today. Let's pray. Lord, as we conclude our time, my prayer is simple, Lord. Through your word, would you bring encouragement through comfort? Lord, there are brothers and sisters here this afternoon who walk in fear at texts like these. Would you bring about comfort? This text is about Jesus. This text is about Yes, his return, but his return because of the work he has begun in us, and he has promised that he will see it to completion. Would you bring comfort to my brothers and sisters? God, would you bring encouragement through conviction? Conviction of perhaps this is something that we constantly miss because our minds are on other things. We forget about the return of Jesus and we forget about how much that shapes how we live today. Would you bring about conviction? Perhaps, Lord, this is something that we don't think about, therefore we're walking in sin. I don't know what that looks like. Would you bring it to the heart? Would you expose our hearts so that we would confess it? And that would be the third thing, Lord. Would you bring us encouragement through the confession of sin? that we would lay before you that we are not enough and that we don't have all the answers, but you do. Finally, would you bring encouragement? Would you bring encouragement concerning the coming of Christ? Whether it's in our day or many years from now, the truth of the matter is that we will be with Jesus forever. This is not a day of dread, one of delight for the Christian. Encourage, Spirit, would you encourage my brothers and sisters?